you know, how many people I know here and, and know who you are, it's, it's just incredibly humbling to be the one standing up here um, in front of you. As we've been talking about Galatians, Sandy's theme is free at last, and he's been talking about the apostolic gospel, the revealed gospel, the only gospel. This morning, I want to look at the compelling gospel. Now, in the class I teach, the Emmaus class here at Second, uh, it's mid-20s to mid-30s, singled, married, and what we've been looking at over the last few weeks is Psalms 120 through 134, and they're called the Songs of Ascent, and it was the songs that the Israelites sang as they went up to Jerusalem as they began to prepare themselves for the three great feasts of the year, and these songs were meant to encourage them and to, to challenge them and to make them think about what it meant to be God's people and to prepare them for these times of, of corporate worship. And so we've been talking about in our class, if that's the case, then we need to ask of ourselves what these psalms tell us about what it means to be God's people and what it means to prepare ourselves for worship. And so as we've been talking about Galatians with Sandy, the question I keep asking myself is, as he's laying out all the reasons why the gospel's true and that you know, Paul's credentials for, for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, and as we've looked at these things, the question I'm asking myself is, then how do I respond to that? What is the... What is Paul telling us in Galatians that begins to shape me and prepare me to be uh, part of God's people? And I want to give you a little background, uh, just sort of semi-testimonial. I, I, I won't do this for long, but just to kind of set the table for why I chose 2 Corinthians five fourteen through six ten, and just to give you a little background on where I'm coming from with that and why this is uh, why I think this is an important text to tell us what the gospel compels us to do. About 11 years ago, Tim Keller came and spoke at the Life Conference here at Second, and he spoke on the prodigal son, and uh, he's now since written a book called The Prodigal God that sort of lays that sermon out. And if you've read it, you know it's incredibly challenging, and it's a real paradigm shifter as you, he begins to lay out the older brother and the younger brother and point out that in many ways, and, and for me personally, growing up in the South and in a very uh, nominally Christian culture with a lot of familiarity with, what it, with the church and what it meant to be a Christian, that we can begin to see elder, elder brother tendencies in ourselves and sort of this exchange with God of trying to maintain a certain level of behavior in order to get a certain life in return so that we sort of set up a business transaction with God. So as he talked about that and as we listened to it, and I can remember going home and just, you know, feeling like I'd been hit by a truck because I'd never thought about myself that way before. And I began to see in myself all of those elder brother tendencies. Not long after that, uh, I had a good friend that I'd just gotten to know, and he asked me the question, how often do you feel like a stranger? Now, he's, he uh, has immigrated to the United States, and this question meant a lot to him because there are times where, you know, just didn't feel like home quite yet. And for me, I began to realize how many ways that I really do feel really comfortable within my culture. And, and as I began to think through what it meant, you know, how often we're challenged in the Bible that we're strangers and we're aliens, began to realize how much the culture had shaped my own faith as opposed to having my faith shaped biblically and what a narrow view I had of what it meant to follow Christ. And then I read an article in World Magazine where the author taught, it was a column talking about having a sense of entitlement. And he said as he began to pray to God, he was praying for the success of this book deal and he said, but as I realized, as I was praying that, God said, really, you want, to, you want this book to be successful? Why? And he said, well, you know, so that people will see your name glorified and be lifted up. And he said, and then after God kept asking me the question, I really kind of came back to, because uh, I'd really think it's cool to have a book deal and I'd like to be successful. And, you know, he began to realize that he felt entitled from God to have a certain standard of living. And then finally, I read a book by Gary Hagan called Just Courage. This is a terrific book, and at the beginning he tells a story of going with his, parent, with his father and some brothers and relatives, and they were all going up to Mount Rainier, and they were going to spend some time there, and then the last day they were going to actually climb the mountain and go up to the top. And he was 10 years old, so he was a little nervous about what it meant to really go do this climb. So they had this great week. They go to the visitor center, and they're getting ready to leave to go climb the mountain, and uh, and he kind of chickens out, and he tells his dad, look, this visitor center is so great. I think I'd rather just stay here, and I'll play and watch the videos, and they've got a lot of you know, hands-on stuff. I'm just going to do this, and y'all go on up, and I'll wait for you here. 
And so he says, you know, it was really great for a while. There were, there were a lot of, you know, interactive stuff, and he was really learning a lot about mountains and mountain climbing, and it was really exciting. And so after a while, though, of course, he, he got pretty bored. And then he just got downright homesick. He missed his family. He was feeling lonely in the, in the visitor center, and he says this. After the longest afternoon of my 10-year-old life, Dad and my brothers returned flush with their triumph. Their faces were red from the cold and their eyes clear with delight. They were wet from the snow, famished, dehydrated, and nursing scrapes from the rock and ice. But on the long drive home, they had something else. They had stories and an unforgettable day with their dad on a great mountain. I, of course, revealed nothing, insisting that it was my favorite day of the whole vacation. But truth be told, I went on the trip and I missed the adventure. And 34 years later, I still remember the day at the visitor's center. Now, it's not hard to see the application point here, but I say all of that to tell you that that, when I read that, it just punched me right in the gut because I felt like that was sort of a summary of so much of what it's been like for me to be a Christian. I've been a Christian for 30 years, and so often I'm choosing the visitor center over choosing climbing the mountain. And it's a frightening thing to me to think that as I look, you know, I don't want to look back on my life one day and realize that every time I had a choice that I chose the safety of the visitor center over, the, over climbing the mountain. And so as I hear Sandy talk about what the gospel means, and as I teach my own class about, about you know, the, the Israelites heading to Jerusalem for worship, what I keep telling myself and trying to work through faith-wise is how do I become the person that's willing to leave the visitor center to really go worship, to really draw close to God? Because what I find is the, ten- the tendency to try and keep God at arm's length because I'm scared to death of what it's going to mean if he draws close. He is a, you know, a fearful God, and we hear all kinds of stories about what it means to follow him, and yet we know that there's such a promise at the end of it. And so that's where I, how I wound up on 2 Corinthians 5, 14. So let me read that for you, and then we'll get started and talk about the compelling gospel. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. And I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet received as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. So what I'd like to do is just start off with that and just talk about first the fact that what he's telling us is, is that the gospel compels us. We're compelled by Christ's love who died for our sins. So this word compel is, a, is the Greek word sun echo. And it means to intensely hold and hold together and press together. And so what he's saying is that he's sort of encircled by Christ's love. He's hemmed in. 
in the sense that it, the, it's translated in a, some translations constrained. And so we think of constraint as something negative, but here it's something incredibly positive. It's, it's the sense that, that, that God set up something around us that, that pushes us forward to, to be what we ought to be. And so he says, when I think of the love of Christ, I can't help it. There's, I have no other choice. There's nothing else I can do but respond this way. I'm compelled. It's sort of like being willing to wear an orange coat and cowboy boots because you're compelled by the love of your team. Thank you for the great visual aid. Um, so if we're compelled, what does that mean? Think about what compels you. And I was thinking about, like, Michael Phelps. And as I watched him swim, I thought, you know, it's, it's one thing to get in a pool and swim. I don't know if you've ever tried to do swimming as a workout. I, I did once, and I can remember. <laughs> and it was so humbling. You know, you have to get up at, like, 5 in the morning, and you go over to the University of Memphis and get in the Olympic pool, and you realize that's a lot farther than most of the swimming pools you've ever been in. And so about halfway, you know. And then there was an old woman next to me in the lane, like 70 years old, and she was just laughing at me, and I said, I can't take any more of this. But as you watch Michael Phelps, you realize it's not that he's just getting in the pool and swimming. He's got to get in there and be swimming that fast all the time. I mean, he, th- what, what motivates you to do that? And so he's, he's compelled. He's got this desire. And if you think about it, everything that he does from the time he wakes up in the morning until he goes to bed at night is geared towards swimming faster. Um, I looked it up just to kind of get a feel. I'd heard someone say, have you ever heard what he eats all day in, in one day? It's ten to 12,000 calories a day. And they said the average man, if he were to eat that, would gain two pounds a day. <laughs> but he's swimming two to five hours a day plus doing weight training. Now, I'm not telling you this is a healthy way to live, but I am saying that it's a powerful image of what someone's capable of when they're properly motivated towards a goal. And so, you know, the obvious application is what are we compelled by? What is it that's so powerfully moving in us that when we wake up in the morning, we're thinking about how it's going to shape the rest of our day and that every decision we make is fed back into that vision of where it is we're headed, what it is we're doing. Um, And it's a humbling thing. I can remember going to Promise Keepers in Atlanta and having two consecutive speakers. One said, you know, if you want to know what it is you believe in, look at your checkbook. And the next one got up and said, if you want to know what you believe in, look at your daily schedule. And I got to thinking, you know, if it's, it's an unwritten rule in my home that if the Memphis Tigers are playing basketball, don't schedule anything then. And don't plan on me being helpful. And don't ask me to cut the yard or, you know, this is my time. And so what's important to me, not only am I going to make time for it, but I've really made it clear to everyone around me what's going to happen during those two hours. And so we have to ask the question, were we compelled that way by the gospel? Because this is, you know, pretty important thing to figure out that just the general direction of our life we get so busy that we never step back and ask where we're headed we just know we're running really hard somewhere and so we need to wrestle with this idea and the question is why doesn't it more powerfully motivate us than it really does and it's because it's really hard to see on a day-to-day basis unless something dramatic happens the impact the gospel is having on you and it's because we don't we're just not set up to get quiet and to think about it And here's what we need to be thinking about. As we think about the gospel, there's two aspects of it, and we underestimate both. We underestimate God's holiness, and we underestimate his mercy. It goes back to the prodigal son story. See, the older brother just didn't realize how big a deal it was to be holy. He thought he could work it off and get his father's reward. And the younger brother says, yeah, I'll go back, and maybe he's a good man. Maybe he'll treat me like his servants. And he doesn't realize the rich grace that his father is going to give him. He brings him back in like nothing's ever happened. So the father, the father is willing to pay the cost. He's already lost part of his, of his estate. He's willing to give him even more of it to bring him back home. So as we think about holiness, here, here's one of the things I think about is when we talk about God loves everyone in the South, we say that we throw that around like good morning and how you doing. And, you know, one of the things we say in our mouths is, oh, God love you. You know, something bad happened. Oh, God love you. And, you know, we take it so for granted and we throw it around like it's, it's a slam dunk. And here's what I think goes on. If you think about somewhere you go where you start feeling like you're really okay. And like the, here's where it happens to me. At the Mid-South Fair, you go to the fair and you walk around and you see some of the people there. Come on, don't tell me you haven't done this. And you walk around and you go, I'm really not so bad off after all. You know, and you begin to think, you know, or you watch the news, you watch a reality TV show and you think these people are insane. And you, you begin to feel like, well, of course, you know, I can kind of see how God might love me, but man, to love them, that is a stretch. And 
there's a certain amount of just, of course, you know, we do like Seinfeld. Do you ever pull up to a traffic light? And within like 30 seconds, you can already have prejudged everybody in the cars around you. You know, the yuppie woman putting on her makeup and the, the guy on the, you know, texting and, oh, he's a workaholic. And, you know, it's so easy for us to try and feel superior and not really understand what God's holiness means to us. See, it's one thing for him to, you know, wow, it's big that he forgave them. But, you know, I'm really not so bad. My sin's kind of nuanced and, you know, so we need to get a grip on God's holiness. Here's a quote from Annie Dillard. I love this quote, and it really summarizes for me how often I approach God. On the whole, I don't find that Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing with, on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear a lady's straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should, ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Uh, as I read that, that, that just reminds me that we worship a holy God. And if, everywhere you look in the Bible, they were really clear on one thing. You know, it's great to be an American, but it really doesn't set us up for recognizing the power of a king. We really don't take to kings well here. And as we look, we're reminded as we read a quote like that, and you realize, yeah, well, you know, she's right. This is a holy God. And for us to walk into church like, of course, is just craziness. But on the other hand, what Paul's saying is, is knowing the holiness of God and knowing my own heart as I walk, I know that because of the love of Christ, I'm able to enter into his presence, that I've been reconciled to God. And he says, once I've gotten a hold of that, I'm compelled. I'm a changed person. I'm a new creation that I'm no longer what I was before. And that's what we're going to look at. It changes everything for Paul. Once he begins to get just the slightest hint of God's holiness and God's mercy, He's totally changed in every way possible. So what are the ways that he's changed? Uh, Verse 15 says, Now those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. So he's given a new purpose. No more is he going to live for himself. And and here's the irony of it. We think that when we say, I'm going to live for Christ, it's no longer me who lives, but it's Christ lives. It's as if we're giving up something. We're giving up our identity. We're giving up our individuality. When, in fact, we're never more uniquely who we are than when we are, in fact, living our lives for Christ. Because it's what we're, we're created to do. And God is uniquely being whatever it is, He, you know, through us. Each of us is prepared a little bit differently to experience and know him. So we're given a new purpose. Verse 16. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So now he he was given a new purpose, and then now he's given a new perspective. He says, I I can never again look around. I can never walk through the Mid-South Fair and look at people in a judgmental way I did before because I see in them the same person that I was before I knew Christ. See, before he knew who Christ was, he thought, he, you can read through in some of his letters, he said, look, I had it all. I, you know, I was the, uh, the Jew of Jews. I mean, I, I had greater learning. I had what I, he had all the credentials. So by the world standards, he had every right to walk around and feel, feel superior to everyone around him. And that's true for a lot of people in this room. By the world standards, you've got it all. You've got a great education. You've got wealth. You've got power, position, and connections, and whatever. You've got everything that the world has to offer. And by the world's standards, they look at you and they think, yeah, he's got it together. And what he's saying is, is that it's fine to recognize where you're coming from, but we can never look at other people the same way again so that we can never take those things that we have and use them in a sense of superiority. What we do is we look at ourselves and we say, no matter what God's blessed me with, I know my own brokenness and I see that in that other person. And before Christ, I would never have known it, but now I do. And here's what I think that looks like. There's a terrific book called Saving Levi. And Levi was a, uh, is a, a little Chinese boy. And there was a couple that was in China and they were working in an orphanage. And Levi uh, was brought to them by a farmer. There was a ba- this baby was in a field. He had been burned up over 70% of his body. 
So here he was, this burned up bloody mess. This farmer finds him. Other, they say that other people saw him and kept going. But this farmer came by and he picked him up and he knew that at least the people at the orphanage were compassionate and that they might, you know, he might at least die in peace or they could relieve the pain. So he takes him there. This woman receives this baby and she sees that he's all burned up and so she immediately drives to the hospital. The hospital, they look at him and they say, there is no point in us wasting time or money or resources. He's going to die. Just let him die. So she sits beside him all night and watches him struggle for life. But he, they tell, him, tell her that he won't survive the night, but he does. So the next morning she said, if he's willing to fight, then I am. So she goes in and she says, look, I'll pay whatever the cost is for this baby to be taken care of. And so they try to give him some pain relief. Well, he keeps fighting and he keeps living. And so they, anyway, the long story short is that she begins to champion this child. And no matter who she encounters, she begins to demand that they're going to give him medical treatment. They're going to take care of him. And uh, as people see her responding to this child this way, they begin to be moved by compassion. And so they come in and they offer money. Um, she's given free flights to Boston to get him. Uh, apparently, it's the best burn unit in the country. And so they fly him from Beijing to Boston. People in Boston donate their homes. People on the plane find out that she's... Uh, got this baby and what's going on and they find out the story and people begin to write checks on the plane and hand it to her everybody wants to be a part of it now so now this child who was left out in a field to die now everyone wants to be a part of his story and so in the end at the end of the book anyway this child's still alive you know he has uh, i know one hand uh, amputated part of one leg amputated he's got multiple surgeries for all his burn wounds but he's lived and he's a healthy happy little boy and this family wound up adopting him i tell you that to say that what we need to see is this is the message of christ and changing our perspective see this baby had nothing to offer the world and no one cared until someone stepped in and showed everyone else his worth and his dignity and what paul's telling you is is that that's the way i looked at everyone else until jesus stepped in and became the advocate so I saw what Jesus was willing to give up for, this, you know, for these people, for whoever this is. When I saw what he was willing to do, when I saw what it cost him, it totally changed my perspective. So now that I no longer look at anyone else the same, I've been to- my perspective has been totally changed by the love of Christ. That's what's got to happen to us. Because we, you know, there is, um, there is a, you know, a tribalism that's built into us that that we just struggle to fight and and we will look for any reason to hate anyone else that we can no matter if, if it's if it's race if it's weight if it's age if it's you know socioeconomic status it doesn't matter we're 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 so busy trying to be comfortable and being being part of our culture that we forget that it's our calling to be aliens and strangers and so this is what we're called to, is to change our perspective and to see that if Christ finds value in someone, then we find value in them. And what we find out is, is that we can't truly experience the whole fullness of God without having those other, you know, other people within our family. Because if we stick to just the people we know, the people just like us, then we're only going to get that very narrow slice of who God is. To experience him fully, we have got to be reconciled to the rest of the to the rest of Memphis. We need to be in every part of Memphis, Christians from everywhere coming here. You know, it's an encouraging thing to look around the room and see just so many people, so many different backgrounds because we each bring a different understanding of what it means to follow Christ. And in doing that, we get the fullest possible experience as we go to worship. We come to him in a much more complete way than if we come to him alone. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So we've been given a new purpose. We've been given a new perspective. Now the gospel compels us that we have a new nature. In Christ, we're a new creation, not just... A, see, here's the thing. Jesus wasn't just a great man or a great teacher. As much as the world wants to cast him as that, that just wasn't... He never left us that option. He never left us an option of just being a good person. And that's the key to understanding what it means to be a new creation. See, Jesus didn't come to make us nicer or more helpful or to have us help people across the street or open doors. All those things are great. We certainly should be doing all of them. But that's not what he died for. See, if Jesus had just gone into Jerusalem and just gone into, into uh, 
the, the Middle East, if he had just gone in saying, be nicer, be more helpful, be considerate, respect authority, no one's crucifying him for that. What they're crucifying him for is because he stepped in, he said, do all those things, but I want you to be someone completely different. I'm tearing down all the walls. You, you can't be comfortable in your religiosity. You can't be comfortable in your own tribal hut. You've got to get out into the world. He's demanding so much more of us than just being polite and nice. And that's the hard thing about Southern culture. I mean, we do that by nature, right? I mean, we're helpful. We're sweet. We'll tell you you look good when you don't. We'll tell you you got a nice haircut when it's really horrible, you know? So we're really nice people. But are we changed people? Are we transformed? Are we a new creation? Because that's what Jesus has demanded, and that's what they crucified him for. I I think of, uh, I don't know, a lot of the younger guys here probably haven't heard him because I've never listened to him much. J. Vernon McGee, and he has that really, that really, (laughs) uh, see, he's got that gravelly old voice, and the the one thing I keep hearing uh, when I think of this is, uh, he says something about, you know, people talk about giving God their heart. What does he want their old heart for anyway? He gives them a new heart. And that's what it is. He's given us a totally new heart. It's a total transformation. You know, a friend of mine asked me a question along those lines one time, and it was along the lines of that question about, do you, how often do you feel like an alien? These are the two questions that friends have asked me that have, that have probably changed my own faith more than anything. We were sitting around one night and, and generally we just sit around and take about an hour and a half and we solve all the world's problems. And one of the questions that, um, that he asked me was, you know, do you know that Jesus's last name wasn't Christ? You know, he said, we say Jesus Christ as if, you know, Matt Turkey and he's, he said, do you understand that Christ was a title and it was an, impl- it carried with it, a host of implications, a host of expectations, that it was Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And he said, so as we thought about Messiah, as Jesus proclaimed himself to be Messiah, uh, it, it carried with it a whole host of implications. And he said, but what that means for us is, is that we have to look at what that meant, that he was the Christ. And we have to begin to ask ourselves, what is it, what is, how does that change us? He said, you understand that now we have to go back and look at this isn't just fire insurance, that we have to go back and see that for him to be the Messiah was ushering in the kingdom of heaven. And with that came a host of expectations, a host of implications for what it meant. And so you remember when John the Baptist says, go ask Jesus, is he the one we were looking for? And Jesus says, go back and tell him the blind walk. I mean, the blind see and the lame walk and and the prisoners are set free. And he's saying, yes, this is what it means for me to be the Christ. And so what that means for us is, is this is the work that we're to be about. And I say that to say, again, it's not about us being nicer and it's not about us being friendlier. Those are great things and we need to do them. And that's certainly a way, you know, our being friendly is a way to step in and then begin to be the people we're supposed to be, to be the new creation that now no longer sees these people, sees anyone the same way that we saw them before, but we begin to see each other and ask the question, how can I serve? Because that's what the kingdom of heaven brings in. It begins to upset all. That's why they wanted to crucify him as he upset all the logic of the, of the culture of, of the day of the world was that now I'm no longer seeking to be the most powerful. I'm seeking to be the most serving. I'm no longer seeking to be rich. I'm seeking to be poor and give you what I have. Nobody wanted to hear that, and we still don't want to today. Verse 18, he says, We've been given a new mission. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. And here's one of the most frightening passages in all the Bible. As though God were making his appeal through us. Um, As I read that, that is just absolutely one of the most frightening things I can imagine because I can tell you God couldn't have picked a worse person to make his case with than me. And as I look at who I am, and I think that if, I, if people know that I'm a Christian and that I'm supposed to be making God's appeal on his behalf, what do they see? And it just frightens me. I had a guy ask me earlier this week, uh, you know, what are you teaching on? And I caught myself soft-pedaling it. 
because I didn't really know him. And so I wanted to just make it sound really nice and agreeable and not stir anything up. I wasn't making a case for God. I was making a case for, hey, I'm not nuts, you know. So what does that look like? As we talk about this idea that we're saved, that no, we're not just saved individually like fire insurance, that we're saved into the kingdom of God with all of this, uh, with, with all of what the, what the kingdom of God means, what it brings to the table in terms of service and in terms of, you know, God right, bringing justice. What do we look like within that? And he tells us that our, our role within that is to be ambassadors. That where we go, we go out into the world and we begin to show people what the kingdom of God is going to look like. So that when we go somewhere, we're concerned about justice, about paying a fair wage, about uh, serving each other, about uh, feeding the hungry, about healing the sick, about all of these things, about, uh, about loving your wife, about t- you know, loving and disciplining your children, all of those things, about serving the people in your community, about being a better neighbor. It's all of those things. And so as the world looks, they begin to ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? And that's our job is to be ambassadors of that. And when you think about ambassadors, you know, they go and they're going from their country to another country. And what they're trying to do is sort of work out the best possible relationships. You want to go in and bring in, you know, the best, you know, make the best economic deals. And, and so you're going in as an ambassador to, like if I go to, as ambassador to China, I'm trying to work out the best trade deal with China and to make sure the relations stay the best and make friends there and influence people. And I'm doing all of it because I'm trying to build up my own country. I'm doing it for the best of my country. And that's what we're doing, that we are the aliens and the strangers who go out into this, uh, into this foreign land and we go out as representatives, but we do it in a totally different manner because now I'm not, I, while I am trying to build up the kingdom of God, I'm not doing it the way that we build up the kingdom of men. I'm not going in trying to seek the best business transaction. I'm going in saying, I'm giving you everything that I have. I'm giving you all that I am. And, and that's how we're building it. I'm going in saying, I'm going to serve you. I'm not looking for you to give me everything you have. How can I come in and give you all that I am, all that we have? How can we serve? It's totally against, it's totally counterintuitive of the way that ambassadors would normally work. And so that we have to remember that everywhere we go, when we wake up in the morning, like Michael Phelps thinking about how he can swim faster, this is what we wake up thinking. When I wake up today, what does it mean for me today to be God's ambassador, to be the ambassador of his kingdom in the, in the world that I live in? Michael Horton says it this way. We belong to a communion of saints that defies the natural, culture, cultural, or political affinities of the temporal city. We already indwell a new creation that will be consummated when Christ returns. In our common prayers, songs, and service, we point ourselves and our neighbors to another king who makes his subjects co-heirs and fellow children of the Father. And in our common witness, we become God's means of gathering strangers to the Sabbath feast. Then as we are scattered into the world as salt and light, we pursue our callings as parents, children, volunteers, citizens, little league coaches, employees, and employers with the assurance that our primary citizenship is in Zion. He goes on to say, in the ministry of word and sacrament, in the fellowship of the saints that transcends earthly divisions and demographics, in the diaconal care for those in need, and in its mission to the world, the church testifies that Christ is already Lord and will consummate his kingdom when he returns. Now, this is kind of an aside from where we are, but it'll, it, we'll get back to it in just a second. But as we've been talking about Psalms 120 through 134 in, in the class that I'm teaching, one of the things that we've talked about as we look at this, what he's saying is, is that you know, if, if you look at, he's talking about we're tearing down all the political all the demographic differences, we're tearing all that down and what we're building is the kingdom of God. And so there's a, one of the Psalms we've been teaching said that um, unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers build, uh, build in vain. And, he, he, and there's a, a four-chapter stretch that starts off talking about those who trust in the Lord will have a foundation as sure as Zion. And so he's saying that if you trust in God, nothing can shake you. It's an unshakable faith. 
And he goes on to talk about what that, you get that unshakable faith by remembering who God is and what he's done for you. And then the next step is, he says, unless, you, unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers build in vain. So he's saying, if you trust in me, and here's how you're going to do it, then trusting in me, you're going to begin to build what I build. You're going to work on what I work on. And, that's where you, and then the last chapter in that little sequence is, he talks about the flourishing. The, you'll receive the blessing. You'll receive the blessing of your hard work. Your wife will be a fruitful vine. We're not going into that. Uh, I think Todd covered that. Um, you know, so he's talking, and he, he begins to talk about all the ways that our lives will flourish if we trust in God and have that, you know, have that unshakable foundation of trust in him. Now, I say all that to say, as we go out into our lives, how can you possibly go out and do these things and be this type of person, you, being compelled by the gospel, knowing that it's true? Here's, the cat, here's one of the things that we fight against. We tend to approach it as, I'm get, look at what I'm giving up. We've bought into the lies of the world. We say that if we're going to be married, we, you know, the beer commercials show you these single guys, you know, ugly single. Apparently, you know, beer world is an amazing place because, you know, <laughs> unattractive fat guys watching TV become magnetically attractive to attractive women. And, you know, so the message is that, the message of our culture is, man, it's really stupid to just be married to one woman. I mean, that's crazy. Who, who can do that? It's even the message we give our kids. Hey, we know we can't stop you, but you know, at least be safe about it. And you know, the message is from the lottery ads, if you could just hit the lottery, man, you'd have it made. It would solve all your problems. But you know, go look up the, the records of all the people who won the lottery, and what you find out is that whatever problems they had before, they were just magnified by the money. They weren't solved. And so I say all that to say we've bought the lies of the culture. When I read this, it almost sounds like sacrifice, like I'm really having to give up something. And what I find out is I'm giving up all the garbage. You know, C.S. Lewis has the quote that um, we're so busy playing with mud pies because we don't realize what a vacation at the beach would really be. You know, we're choosing the lesser things when God's holding up the greater thing. And so we choose... To, to run around in our marriage because we don't understand what it means to have a holy marriage before God. We choose to race after money and race after things and think that if we can pile up enough material possessions that we'll have something. And when God's holding up a whole different standard, he says, I'm the thing you need. I'm the bread of life. I'm giving you what you, what you need. And if you'll give it away, I promise you'll be happier than if you hold on to it tightly. We could do this all day. You could run through every single thing that the culture is telling us. And what we're finding out is, is that we're not giving up something. We're letting go of something in order to hold on to something far greater. And we're, we're choosing the visitor center when what God's saying is there's a mountain to be climbed. There's a view you won't believe, and you'll never see it sitting here. And yet we've let the world tell us that the visitor center is comfortable and it's nice and it's air-conditioned and it's great and it's safe and there's no risk and... And those are all the things that we keep holding on to. So, and, and it's why I keep God at arm's length. Because I'm frightened to death to take the safety net away and start swinging around and climbing that mountain. Verse 21, as he's now told us about our new purpose and our new perspective and our new message and our new, uh, excuse me, and our new mission, he tells us this is your message. He reminds us now as we've gone through this, he says, as he talks about making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He says, Here, here's what I'm telling you now, please do it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so he's saying, that's your message. That's the message of reconciliation. He who had no sin became sin. And so, the, you know, the thing that, that I struggle with is, is that I tend to race past that. And again, it's that of coarseness that comes into my own faith of forgetting what it means for God to forgive me, for me to have Jesus' righteousness. And it, it takes some sitting and being quiet. Sometimes the, the things that we're doing are so obviously wrong that it's easy for us to see, and to see our need for forgiveness but as you get caught up in the church and you're going to meetings and you're going to Sunday school and you're doing things, it's really easy to get caught up in that culture and really forget your need of forgiveness and to forget your need to go before God on your knees, confessing who you are and seeing your own brokenness. And there's nothing more important than for us to continue to see our own broken nature. And the closer we draw to Christ and really realize 
what it's going to mean to follow him, what he's really asking of us, you'll see your own selfishness. It'll be unmistakable. But it requires being in, you know, in the Bible and seeing who he was. It's not something you can do vicariously. It's wonderful for us to sit and listen to Sandy and to hear this teaching, but what we've got to do then is turn around and go back and make it our own and read through what he's taught and begin to ask those questions and let God speak to us through his word, through Sandy, and then through the word. As we take those notes, we ask God to talk to us about it. And it, only in that, uh, I'm in an, uh, uh, I do oil painting, and I was in a class this week, and the guy said, look, you've got to see, when you look up there and you see the model, you've got to see it this way. And as we struggled to figure it out, he came, and then he stood right where I stand, and he said, now, here's what, exactly what I want you to look at. Look at it for yourself, and then tell me what you see. And see, that's what I'm telling you. That's what it takes. This isn't something we can just read, listen to and read in a book. It's something we have to come in and experience for ourselves. We have to begin to see who we really are and to see that need for forgiveness. Now, after he's told us that, then he he makes it even more urgent. Uh, uh, Moving on to 6, verse 1 and 2. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. And now is the day of salvation. So what he's telling you is, is now he's given us new purpose, new perspective, new mission, new message. Now this is a new schedule. Our schedules tend to get dominated by whatever deadline's coming next. We tend to be, it's the, the phrase tyranny of the urgent. That's how I live my life. Whatever's due next, wherever I have to be next. And the way we cram so much stuff in our schedules, there's always something next. We very rarely allot time like we've done this morning to sit and to think for a minute and be quiet and to consider and to, to reflect on what the gospel means to us. And what he's saying is now you've got a new schedule because what he's reading to us is Isaiah 49 verses 8 and 9. This is what the Lord said, says, In the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will, be, they will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat of, or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. What he's telling you is not just that now is the time to get out and get the message out. He's telling you something more. He's, what he's telling you, that, that section of Isaiah is talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. And so like I said before, what he's telling you is this isn't just a message to get out as individuals. This isn't just about being saved. It's about being saved into something, being saved into the kingdom of God and everything that brings with it. And so, again, it's that idea of a total change. Everything about us has changed. You're no longer Democrat or Republican. You're Christian first. You're no longer American or Chinese or Indian or whatever. You're American. I mean, you're a Christian first. You're no longer a a businessman. You're a Christian. He's saying, I've called every part of your life, every part of who you are comes into my presence and is now compelled by me. It's constrained. It's brought in. And he's saying, you're now part of, you're a citizen of a whole different country. You know, like you look at Hebrews 11 and 12, and it talks about all the heroes of the faith and the things they did. And it says, I think it's 11, 16, he says, they did this not because they, they didn't receive what they had hoped for, but they knew they were looking to a, to a, a, a home, uh, their true home. They were looking to, to the, the kingdom that would come. That's what he's telling us. He says that time is now, that Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, and now we are to go out and we are to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. And then as we talk about free at last, he's, you know, that's what that verse in Isaiah says. He says to those in darkness, be free. And that's what we take out into the world. See, we're not out going out saying, oh, you've got to give up. You can't drink. You can't smoke. You can't do this. We're not going out and say, here, now behaviorally shift to where we are. Be who we are. 
We're going in with a much greater message of saying, you're in the darkness and I've got the light. You're in bondage and we've got freedom. We're going to set you free from all these lesser things that you're holding on to. We're holding on to the best thing. We, you know, we've got, we've got a passion for, what it is, for who, who it is that we follow. And we say, look, I want to show you what it is I've received. I want to show you what I've seen. And now is the time for us to do it. Now, the scariest part of all this is if you look at verses 6, 3 through 10, and you see how Paul commends himself, and he's basically saying climbing the mountain is tough. And look at the words he uses in endurance and troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riot, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger. It sounds like being on a football team. Um, You remember two a days? Purity, understanding, patience, kindness. He's given us this whole list of what it's going to look like as we follow him. And it's scary. And it's the thing that does make us keep God at arm's length. As we look at climbing the mountain, it is difficult. And yet we are compelled. And see, the thing we need to remember, though, is is that Paul is holding up here for us a greater thing. He's holding up something that's true when we're holding on to what's false. And here's what, here's what I want to show you. This letter was written towards the beginning of his ministry. Look at 2 Timothy 4. And this is a real familiar passage, but it's important to see. This is what Paul writes at the end of his ministry. And this is after he's told them you know, about being beaten and imprisoned and whatever. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me that day. And not only to me, but also to those, to all who have longed for his appearing. What he's saying is, is that I fought the good fight and it was good. You know, I've run the race. And I just want to draw out a couple of points from this. One thing that's important to remember that this is a different fight. When he says, I fought the good fight, when we think of fighting, we think of fighting from positions of strength and power, and we think of logistics and coming into it with, with greater supply and, and, and you know, greater firepower. But this is a different fight. This is a fight that we fight in weakness and humility, and we fight it on our knees. This is a fight that almost, in a sense, we're seeking to lose. We, we give ourselves up. And so I think of three, uh, three just ordinary Christians that I've met as I've had the opportunity to travel and, uh, and go on mission trips and whatever. And so I want to tell you about three quick stories just to remind us what this looks, what does it look like when we really do it? Uh, a couple years ago when I went to China, they said, we're going to get to get you guys together with a, with a house church and we're going to have a meeting and there's probably 20, 30 you know, house church Christians here that you're going to get to meet and you can talk to. And what we'd like to do is maybe have you give a 30-minute talk on faithfulness. And uh, so the, you know, on the flight over, I'm thinking about what that would mean. And we get there, and as we're mingling and getting to know people beforehand, one of the Chinese guys, and we begin to talk and you know, ask him, what do you do? You know, how's it going? He's, we find out that he's been in jail twice for being a Christian. And he says... You know, the first time it was great because I led like 10 people to Christ right there in the prison. He said the second time it was so frustrating because I only led like three. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm supposed to teach you about faithfulness. Wait, this is, you know, so the panic set in. But what I'm telling you is this is just, this is just a guy in China. No one's writing a book about him. No one knows who he is. But he's compelled by this truth that he's encountered that set him free from the darkness so that even under the threat of imprisonment or worse, he's just living his life, doing what he knows he's got to do. Met another couple who uh, helped do underground churches, and we were actually, uh, they distribute Bibles and everything. I, I think it's probably not quite the same dynamic now as it used to be, but the point is when we were there, they knew they were being watched by the police. Several of their friends had been arrested for handing out, you know, for distributing Christian materials. And as we met with them, it was him and his wife. And I noticed that his wife had on, you know, when you think of China, if you haven't been there, sometimes you still get stuck in sort of the old communist thing, and you think that they're all wearing their little blue mouse suit, you know, and everything's real plain. And 
Um, so as I'm looking at her, I'm realizing that she's she's dressed cute. You know, she's she's gotten you know new shoes and whatever. And as she's talking to us, she started crying, just saying, "I just worry that he's going to get arrested, and I've got a child, and I don't know how we'll take care of. You know, I don't know how to take care of my family if they come take him." And I I tell you that just to say. I'm sitting there watching these people, and they're talking very matter-of-factly about taking these risks and everything. And what I want to do is sort of elevate them to sort of some sort of super-Christian status and think that they're just like different DNA. God's put them together different. And what I find out is she's still worried about looking cute for him. She's still worried about him being arrested. They're just normal people. They're just everyday people that none of us would have ever heard about otherwise. But they're so compelled by this truth that they've encountered that they have to, under any threat, take it out into their community. They're seeking ways to go out and distribute the Bible and distribute. They want to tell people. They're not superheroes. Uh, Went to Aswan in Egypt and got to visit a Christian hospital there. Uh, And there's a man there named Dr. Hannah. And uh, he's a Christian Aswan's probably 99, 95% Muslim, and he operates this, this hospital under great duress, under a lot of pressure, but he works there because he knows that the one way that he, can, that he can get the message of Christ across is by helping to heal people who can't be healed any other way. And so people come that can't afford health care, he's helping them to receive it, and in doing that, he's able to, to give Muslims the message of Christ in a way that he would never be able to do otherwise. And here, he's, just a, he's just a normal guy, but he's doing extraordinary things with his faith because he understands he's compelled by the, that desire to communicate the gospel to someone else. And so you know, those are just some ordinary, these are just some ordinary people with extraordinary faith who are doing all the things that Paul mentions here imprisonments, riots, sleepless nights, and hunger. Um, met a Chinese pastor who makes $40 a month, and we asked him what did he do when he ran out of money. And he said, well, then I pray and I fast until I get my, my paycheck the next month. That's hardcore. It's just, it's just something I can't relate to. I don't think that way. And yet I look at these people and I say, I want what you've got. I know that there's something more there. I know that if I could just get out of the visitor center for a minute, I know there's something that's so far greater than anything I've experienced in my own walk with Christ. And it's there, and it's available for me. It's available for you. And as I read through this list, I just and as I think of what Paul said, I think of there is something within every man that wants to hear, good job. You did a good job. You ran the race. You played a good game. You know, I think of uh, my, the last football game I played. My dad's here, and, and I don't know if he'll remember it, but I can remember walking off the field and him walking up and just saying, I'm proud of you. You did good. And I still remember it to this day. There's something about for a, for a younger man hearing an older man, someone they respect, saying, you did it. I'm so proud of you. Is there anything you want to hear more at the end of your life than be able to say, I ran the good race? And to, and to feel just for, you know, and, there, I, and, and there, there's nothing we can do that's going to earn God's love any more than we have it already. So I'm not, I'm not telling you that this is about good works and earning God's favor. But don't you want to be able to say, I ran the good race, that I got out, I, I climbed the mountain, I did the tough stuff. When I look at that list, that's a manly list. That's what men do. You know, we put up with sleepless nights and hunger, and but it's not the it's not always that way. For a lot of us, it's it's a sleepless night taking care of a sick child. You know, it's it's not true hunger, but it's maybe not you know it's it's paying someone a little more than you really have to, but just because you know they did a good job and they need it. It's maybe giving away something to someone because you know that it'll help that ministry. It's taking your Saturday and instead of doing whatever, going and serving somewhere. And I don't mean it like one-off stuff. I mean getting involved in other people's lives. You know, it's one thing to go out and, and uh, you know, get beat up, cut in a yard, and, you know, you get thorns and whatever. It's a whole other thing to get beat up just trying to get to know someone and trying to love them and being willing to fall flat and to say something stupid and to not be liked, but to do it because you're trying to build up. You know, Memphis didn't get the way that it is because one person made one big decision. 
it's the it's millions of little bitty decisions day after day after day that have created some of the problems that we have and it's going to be solved by you and I going out and not necessarily doing one great thing although you may have that opportunity but it's going to be each of us being a little light where we are one decision at a time one person at a time it's spiritual calculus we see the big curve of what we see as the big problems in our day but it really breaks down into these little bitty pieces each of us, you and I, going out every day, little bitty decisions. And so here's what, in the end, what it looks like. And I'll close this here. First John 2, 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here's what I'm telling you. When you hear the story of saving Levi, I want you to hear how great it was that this woman championed this child. But I also want you to hear another thing. I want you to know that when you look at that story, now see yourself as Levi, as the broken orphan in the, in the field that has nothing, no name, no inheritance, no anything, and that you've been scooped up by someone who's going to advocate in your defense. Because that's what it's telling us right here, that Jesus is our advocate. When we know that, here's what happens. We become passionate. Just like John wearing his orange. We become, here's, here's two people I want to hold up for you as examples. Steve Irwin. You remember the crocodile guy? No one thinks crocodiles or lizards are, are wonderful and cute and fuzzy. And he made them very popular because he was so passionate, crawling around in the mud. He had to show you how great these animals were. And we watched him do it. We were drawn in not because of our love of crocodiles, but because of the passion that he had for it. And we wanted to know what got him so excited. Emeril Lagasse got so fired up about food that you would sit and watch him cook something that you couldn't eat, and, and he's cooking things I don't even like. He made me like, you know, he's cooking duck liver, and I'm thinking, man, that looks great. And I'm like, wait a minute, I don't like it. But he's so fired up about it, you want to taste it, you know? It's a silly example, but it's true. If we're really living out the life that God's called us to, if we're really compelled by the love of Christ... We're going to move about our lives with such a passion and with such a, a, we're going to look like a different thing than people have seen before because we're a new creation. We're going to go with a message they've never heard before. We're going to go out and we're going to advocate people that, that never felt they had any worth and we're going to go to them and we're going to speak to them and say, there, you have a worth and a dignity and a love for you that, that you never imagined. Let me show you what it is. And as we go out with that kind of passion and that kind of hunger, we're going to see something far greater than Michael Phelps ever got. Paul, Paul tells us at the end, we will run the good race and we'll receive the crown of righteousness. It's something far greater than gold medals. It's far better than anything we can pile up here for ourselves. If we'll turn loose of the lesser things, God's offering us the greater thing. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, we're thankful that you've chosen us, that you've loved us, that you've made us your people. We just ask that you would help us to understand your holiness and to understand your mercy, that you would begin to show us who you really are Uh, that on our knees we would see your holiness and then that we would stand in your mercy and the grace of Christ. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, sure.